Healthcare is a huge and growing cost in most developed countries, but the promise of personalized medicine, electronic healthcare records, and generally the fusion of information technology with healthcare technology has the potential to deliver much better outcomes for a fraction of the cost. Welcome to W3B Talks, an ongoing exploration of the impact of Web3 and blockchain technologies on business, government, and society. I'm your host, Doug Heinzman. I'm the Chief Catalyst at the Blockchain Research Institute. And in this episode, we are going to try to answer the basic question of what healthcare looks like in a Web3 and blockchain world. To help us with this discussion, I'm joined with Sean Mannion. Sean is the Chief Scientific Officer at Equidium Health. Equidium is a consensus mesh portfolio company and consensus partner, which builds Web3 person-centered healthcare and research networks called Data Integrity and Learning Networks. Sean is also the co-author of the book, Blockchain for Medical Research, Accelerating Trust in Healthcare. Welcome to the podcast, Sean. Thank you, Doug. Thank you for having me here. And thank you for putting out such great content for everyone. Well, we're going to talk about healthcare today. And uh, I think you are uh, an eminently qualified contributor to this, uh, this conversation. Uh, and I know it's a great passion for uh, you and, and other people in the industry we are looking at the intersection of some technology into the healthcare space that has the potential of being very, very impactful. And a lot of us uh, believe that it's kind of long overdue, that uh, healthcare is uh, an incredibly important, but an incredibly expensive component of uh, the economy. And uh, we are always looking for ways of uh, getting better patient outcomes in much more affordable kinds of ways. And so part of the big question is what technology can be brought to bear? Uh, I think we'd, I'd like to start this conversation with kind of two fundamental questions. Well, let's, let's actually first won't be even a question. I, I, I was reading at the, uh, the, the Equidium website, the, your mission statement, effectively kind of your, your raison d'etre. And I thought it was actually a very concise way of, of going to some of the core issues. And it, it reads, that you're, you're out to, um, to, to solve the, pers- the person-centered healthcare and research network problem to advance health equity and outcomes by optimizing data liquidity across enterprise and individual silos. And there's a bunch of important elements in there, one of which is uh, patient-centered, uh, another one is outcomes uh, and equity, and the the other really kind of big idea would be this this idea of, of both data liquidity and trying to break down the silos of data, which I'm supposing is a fair represents a fair amount of the inefficiency uh, that we see in the healthcare marketplace, or perhaps a lot of the potential to improve the system and uh, remove some costs. Indeed, and 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 to put it even more succinctly, we like to say. Uh, data liquidity and health equity powered by Ethereum, although we we view multi-chain future as where we are going. So it really is the case that we, we understand um, data locked in silos doesn't really help either create new products, create new knowledge, nor does it help an individual when it comes to personalizing their uh, treatment or, or, or their diagnosis. The, the health and health-related data about you, about me, about everyone is scattered to the winds. It's in a bunch of different places, particularly when you consider that health-related data, things like social determinants data, environmental data, behavioral data, simply doesn't exist in the electronic health record, which is what we're using to make most health decisions. And so really that data liquidity is absolutely critical. Uh, and from a from a health equity standpoint, both both in in fairness across 
groups that have been underrepresented in, in health advances that are continuing to be under, underrepresented in uh, representation in algorithms for clinical AI that are being uh, created. Um, there's there's all a need to get better um, equity within the system, but there's also on an individual level a, a, a fairness on what of, what of mine is being used for other people's benefit? What of mine from a health perspective should I be compensated for if it's my health data, if it's if it's um, my health uh, adjacent data, maybe maybe social determinants data that is going into um, algorithm training, or what can be brought back to benefit me in a personalized medicine sort of way? Those are the things that we're really focused on and empowering patients to be part of that so that you create a better system through patient consent, through patient empowerment, and through patient compensation. So you've, you've touched on a whole bunch of, I think, very important topics there. So let's tease apart a few of those things. We'll start with the, the data silo question. Um, I was in a conversation recently with uh, another expert in the Web3 world, and the, the analogy of, of the ERP era of the 1980s and 2000s and the idea that if you had a centralized database and then you, you strung onto it various different processes, that that would give you a lot of advantage in terms of efficiencies and reducing the errors of the boundary conditions between silos and getting greater insight and being more responsive and all that kind of stuff. And the suggestion was that that one of the major attributes of blockchain as applied to many different industries is effectively bringing that same silo-breaking advantage to not only organizations, but to ecosystems of multiple stakeholders, multiple parties that can you know, have common views of data and leverage common application functionality, business logic that they have collective confidence in to, um, you know, interact with that data and then collectively produce better results uh, in the industry or, or, you know, for, for the marketplace, for patients in this particular case. So, you know, how big a problem is, is you know, data siloing uh, in, the, in the healthcare space? I, I think it's I, I think it's huge, and I think it's bigger than most people have been realized because we've been so um, used to the differentiation of data. Let's take let's take a perspective um, to start with. And my my uh, my boss and friend Heather Heather Flannery, uh, CEO and founder of Equidium Health, likes to talk about an alien coming to to the the Earth, and and you know in this case I'll use a U.S. perspective and say, okay, where is the health data on an individual? Well, you know the health data on me sits in hospital systems for clinical, sits in perhaps research studies and separate servers for those research studies that I may have been in, and then, and then also sits separately in regulatory um, areas for, for things that need to be overseen from a regulatory perspective, and also non-health related data, which isn't even overseen by the same bodies. So you can have replication and, and differentiation of these silos just across different elements of our system then move to just one of those across different hospital systems. They may use different uh, systems themselves, even internal to a system. They may classify the data in different ways. The data sharing can't happen seamlessly across. Classic example, DOD and VA, though it's the same longitudinal population, the Department of Defense has one set of data about individuals. The Veterans Administration has another set of data about the same individuals, and yet the data sharing across there is is, um, not possible right now and and has driven a significant amount of investment by the federal government on the on the nature of 30 billion dollars that it still has not achieved that goal 
And so those silos of healthcare data are, are immense and then very fractionated all over the place. The challenge with bringing it together in a centralized way is that the data itself is huge. In the 80s, there was a smaller amount of data representationally about me or you than there is now. Whereas now, if you bring imaging data, if you bring all of the types of data about an individual, especially in health, that data has grown so large about a single individual that to consolidate it in a centralized manner is costly, it's inefficient, it's a risk from a, from a hacking perspective. And, and so it doesn't happen on a scale that really brings us personalized medicine. So between that data siloing and between those impediments to centralizing all the data about an individual, we really haven't achieved even a modicum of personalization of data that we could with the right structures in place. So it seems to me that there's, there's a bunch of uh, kind of issues that are, are bundled up there. You know, one of which is uh, that I've heard in actually creates quite a bit of cost in the system, which is the question of, um, you know, what over-testing, right? That, uh, that if, if you're a clinician or you're, you're interacting with a patient and you need a data point in order to, you know, do a diagnosis or prescribe a therapeutic or whatever it happens to be, that uh, you'll order a test, even though that person might have had that test a week ago at some other place. And your lack of visibility and your lack of access to that data just means that it's it's cheaper, it's easier um, at that point to just simply order a new one and just you know have a lot of redundancy, and that just drives a lot of cost in the system. The other related issue, of course, is that uh, if the data is really siloized, then it's hard to find the correlative patterns that may suggest a particular diagnosis or a particular you know, treatment or therapeutic or, or, or um, prescription that is appropriate in that particular, you know, situation. And then the third piece, going to your, your observation just about the, the raw volume of data, of course, you know, all the various different imaging technologies driving huge, you know, data volumes, um, as well as the, the, the testing. But we even have, you know, the, 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 the personal IoT, you know, interaction with our, our lives that we're wearing devices like like this aura ring that I'm wearing that has a collection of five or six sensors in it and measures all kinds of stuff that, um, you know, I can print it out on a spreadsheet and bring it to my doctor to show my, you know, heart rhythm patterns or my HRV over some period of time. Uh, and that that can help them. But even that data is siloized because it's on my phone and my my doctor doesn't have access to it. So this is a big, broad problem. It, it, it definitely is. And to, and to the first point you made, um, that clinical ballot, or, or the, the clinical actionability of data is, is sometimes a question underlying that. If you get one test in one doctor's office and then go to another doctor's office and get that same test, sometimes that's uh, in large part because that second doctor can't trust the provenance of the data that they've got that may, may have gotten from the first doctor. If it's if it's data that's given to the patient and there's no clear way of tracking that provenance of data of showing the data the data wasn't manipulated by the individual. You know what if I'm uh, what if what if I'm someone addicted to opioids and I'm simply manipulating my data between doctors' offices so I can get a, get another prescription? That type of fear feeds into not wanting to 
utilize data across hospital systems. But there's also just a, a, a fear of being sued. If a clinical decision is made by data that someone didn't have oversight on collection of, that that puts that puts the risk, that transfers the risk to that second doctor. And so there's there's a, a number of reasons that are rational within our current system why that takes place. But of course, from a broader perspective, the system has an irrationality to it. And fixing that is a is a broader fix than incremental fixes at any one level. And that's one of one of the challenges. I like I like to think of a future where you walk into a clinician's office and with your consent, that clinician can access any necessary information about you with, and this is important, some way of digesting that information. You can't just throw a bunch of raw data at an individual. Um, you, you, you would need that clinician to have some sort of trusted way of being able to access all of that data, have it processed for their digestion, and use that to make the right diagnosis or the right treatment for you. That's that's what truly personalized medicine would be. And 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 to your third point, um, you know that includes not just what's in an electronic health record here or in another clinic. That includes what's in your aura ring, what's in the apps that you utilize on your phone. We're, we're working with Nokia Bell Labs to try and solve some of those edge device questions. And they're some of the most challenging. How, without constantly sending that information to a, a centralized repository, can you query that information? If you're a doctor who needs to make a decision, or can you use that, that, that information for algorithm training if you're developing a new algorithm? That's going to require not only a technology fix, and we have some pieces of that in place. Uh, you know, we, we, we've got a system for consent, um, fine-grained consent that allows individuals to approve it for this use and not for this use. But you would need to find a way to have the business processes involved and the regulatory approvals involved for that information to be utilized. But bringing all those things to bear, you can have truly personalized medicine about an individual if you can gain access to all of the data you need about them. It's gaining access to that data, not collecting all that data, but being able to query it and being able to train algorithms against it, sending the compute to the data that will allow us to do that in, in, in the data environment that we live. Yeah, the, the potential of a, a patient-centered healthcare system seems to me extremely compelling. That if you, if you look at the dramatic fall in the cost of you know, genomic uh, analysis testing and the, the fall in the, in the uh, the cost of and the expansion of the capabilities of artificial intelligence, the, the ability for us to ingest just vast amounts of information and derive extraordinary insight. And then with a combination of, you know, genomic information and uh, testing information from increasingly powerful, you know, testing machines and, and testing protocols combined with the ability to collect data on a regular basis, 24 hours a day from people that, that that combination of data points should allow us to um, be able to target various different you know therapeutics and 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 drug therapies and uh, you know various different approaches to you know solving patient problems in a very very precise way that uh, right now we just kind of do things you know in a relatively you know generic sort of way and and somewhat well I, I don't want to I was going to say hope for the best. That that's of course is is not giving uh, the medical industry nearly enough credit. But but the, the the point is that we have some relatively coarse grade tools that in a world where we have patient patient centric uh, data available that that changes quite considerably. And the cost associated with delivering 
that care ca- uh, changes a lot as well. Do, do you think that's true? Um, I, I do. And I think, I think this is one of the things that maybe differentiates uh, our, our healthcare system compared to other systems when considering technology fixes for some of the challenges. Um, it, it, technology, technology is, um, you know, hugely profitable and hugely advantageous in a lot of different places. And even taking blockchain as technology, it's advanced in fintech considerably, even beyond cryptocurrency and some of the administrative applications that it's allowed for for um, validating purchases and validating uh, cross country um, remittance of money um, in a faster way. In supply chain, it's matured very quickly because of the value that it can bring. In healthcare, advancing uh, the use of a technology is, is, is a more complicated picture. It's a multi-sided system. And the system itself has, has different dimensionalities to it, not just in the data, but in the, in the different types of quality of data, the different qualities needed for an insurance claim versus a clinical decision versus the research that underlies advancing clinical care. All of these require the same data, and yet each has a different quality threshold. So looking at it becomes very, very different in healthcare than in other places. So I think I think that's one of the reasons um, moving to that patient centricity um, has been a challenge because you're solving not just technical problems, you're solving um, multi-party business problems. And you're trying to figure out the right incentivization structure for the patients, for the doctors, for the payer providers, for the pharmacies. All of these groups have their ways of doing things. And, it, you know, for better or for worse, that's the status quo. Changing that between just two of the parties with a simple application might be possible, but it's going to have repercussions in the other areas or maybe limitations to it because of some regulatory components, say like HIPAA. So figuring out how to change the system as a whole is a more complex challenge, but it has a huge value to it. Um, we like to say that the the, the changes that, that, that blockchain and Web3 have brought to other industries are really just the tip of the iceberg and that the complexities and costs in healthcare actually point to A, more challenging to find the solution, but B, much more value, both on a monetary business level, but also on a health and quality of life and well-being level. And I think that's that's very important as well. Okay, so um, so I, I can I can tr- I can well understand how uh, a blockchain ledger that uh, multiple parties have access to, various different professionals in the healthcare industry or pharmacists or whatever. That if you had a comprehensive ledger that as you interacted with the healthcare system across your entire lifespan, that that situationally the right people can access the relevant portions of your record, which are ledgered, and you've got you know cryptography that is kind of protecting the data and making sure that it's only exposed situationally to the right people in the right spray situations, that that would afford... Um, the, the healthcare system a, a tremendous amount of 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 insight to improve the quality of healthcare and that if we had these next generation electronic healthcare records that that weren't kind of locked into any particular experience with any particular healthcare provider at any particular point in time that that there's a huge advantage in that as we kind of bridge into the second part of that equation that says that we ourselves by virtue of the actions that we take the decisions we make the devices that we wear that we're actually generating data that is not only relevant to our own healthcare record uh, and and the potential quality that the system delivers to us as a person, 
but that that data actually has value as part of a much larger corpus that the healthcare system can can kind of uh, you know go and mine for for insight to deliver better value to much broader audiences, and that kind of brings to bear this question about in a patient centric world. Uh, and in the world you were talking about incentivizing behaviors, that the patient themselves, the individual, has a certain set of behaviors that are part of that incentivization scheme. And so can you imagine systems where we find ways of you know, rewarding people for doing certain things or allowing certain kinds of information to be collected and then leveraged by commercial companies or hospitals for other purposes we we are we are not only imagining that we are trying to set up the the framework for that and in what we call an equitium exchange which will allow individuals to maintain control and access of their own information and when they consent to do so allow say a pharma company to access that information not take all of the data but bounce queries bounce algorithms off of that data and, and that can be done not in a, not only in a retrospective sense, but it can be done in a prospective sense, a future sense. So someone could could essentially say, um, I would like to have patients who um, will make data available about individuals with this inclusion and this exclusion criteria and these types of devices. And I would like three years of that data um, for both a control group and a group taking our product, you know, whether that's a device or a pharma product. Um, that's essentially what's done now in a research study. And, and pharma spends a large amount of money to bring people in for research study and collect their own data. And I think it's uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 20% of the cost of clinical research for pharma is recruitment and retention of patients. Well, what if the patients are involved and being compensated? That data would be more high quality because you knew where it came from. You knew the provenance of that data rather than a lot of times data that's purchased de-identified off of a hospital system to get the, to get the study started. Um, that data would be um, something that the, the, the pharma company could describe beforehand. And that data would be something that allowed for um, much more fine grain use if it's consented. The de-identification of data strips a lot of the value out of it for secondary research, for follow-up studies, and by having that consentedness and, and um, patient empoweredness involved, you, you allow for a much more robust and useful data set. And of course, that empowerment comes from incentivization. But that incentivization can come in many different forms. Obviously, compensation from a monetary or monetary equivalent form is is a standard method of, of, of compensating an individual and incentivizing them. But if you look at the, 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 the history of and the literature about incentivization in healthcare, this is, there's other incentives people have. They want to get better. They want to be healthier. They want to know more about themselves. This is why people send a lot of information to 23andMe and just give it away. Um, they would like to be able to contribute to the, be the betterment of humanity. A lot of the work we do with a, an early focus of our program on veterans um, looks at how you can help veterans and veterans have a tendency to want to contribute back information that will help their community. And so figuring out what incentivizes individuals is something important. Being able to use uh, machine learning to, in to 
set up personal incentivization structures within that system will make it even more valuable than a one-size-fits-all incentivization. So that's that's somewhere where we think things are going, and we're trying to create a structure to allow them to happen. But you're right, the, the, the personal empowerment and personal um, uh, contribution by the patient allows that patient to give better quality data and get back some sort of better quality information about themselves. It's just that the world that you're describing is in many ways quite radically different than the one that we are living in today or that we certainly have been living in for the last, you know, 30, 40 years. Uh, and I, I think it's, it's very exciting that we're going to see all kinds of breakthroughs and much greater efficiency and that data becomes an incredibly valuable resource that uh, to date we have been underexploiting. And so I'm, I'm personally just, you know, over the moon excited about the potential of the intersection of these, uh, these Web3 technologies with the healthcare space. The, the last question I, I wanted to ask you, and, and thank you so much for your time. This has been really interesting. Um, but the, the, the last question that I wanted to ask you was why? Why? I mean, with all this potential, it's sitting there and the technology is available. Why has the healthcare industry been such a laggard? Why is it so difficult to, um, you know, to, to adopt these new technologies and bring what a lot of us think is obvious value to the, the marketplace tomorrow? Why, why is it such a difficult industry to, you know, innovate in, in the information technology space? That, that is a, that is a tough nut to crack, and there's a lot of different fingers to be pointed and do get pointed. I don't I don't like to finger point. I like to problem solve. But it really is the case that um, the, the the technology that has advanced many other industries and can advance health and life sciences and and technology in in health tech um, is somewhat um, limited in its approach because it's had such a successful model through the 90s and, and the past two decades since um, in, in how it approaches from an investment standpoint, from a business standpoint, you know, looking for product market fit and using agile methodology, creating a product and then marketing it to the users and shaping the users around the product. Whereas in health tech, because of limitations from a regulatory perspective, Limitations from a, a clinical validation perspective, um, you can't pretend something works. It either works and there is evidence for it or there is evidence that it does not and then you and then you do not use it. Something, if you've ever spent time working from uh, bench to bedside and what goes into a clinical practice guideline, that 17-year span, which can be shortened significantly with the right applications of technology, isn't completely you know, superfluous. It's there for a reason for the safeguards and checks and balances so that we don't get, you know, whatever hot ticket of the day is just working its way in as some new um, tool. And then it turns out, oops, we shouldn't have been using that. That doesn't help people. Creating new video games or creating new things that people like to use versus things that improve a problem um, are, are, is, is the different marketing and different business um, value that has to be looked at in healthcare. And so the path is much more circuitous, but the entire funding stream and the entire approach of technology has been successful with a different path and I think continues to run off the same short cliff. I've, I've been able to see it in five years since I left academia and federal government and entered the tech world. I think what's necessary is, is, is thinking bigger. We're not trying to make 
faster cars or even going back to the Henry Ford faster horses, which is what everybody seems to think the product market fit is in health tech. We're trying to make a plane that takes off the ground. We're trying to do something transformational and you cannot do that in incrementalism. You can't just stick some wings on a car and think it's going to fly. You have to have the right type of structure for a different type of vehicle and that's what I think we need in healthcare. And we're, we're getting there. There's a lot of pockets of it in the startup community and the existent legacy community, but there's a lot of barriers to them moving differently, um, both from a funding perspective, especially for the startups, also from a, a bureaucratic and authorization standpoint in the, in the pockets of true innovation that I've seen in some of the legacy systems, they're restricted by the other parts of their organization. And so figuring out how to get past that is key. Figuring out how to do that while staying regulatorily compliant, I think that's done through showing the regulators the value of the technology. If I can, if I can allow an institutional review board that governs research to see in real time transparently how data is being collected and where it's coming from versus requiring a self-reported audit twice a year, um, they see the value in it for them. It's cheaper, it's easier, and it's better. And so we have to bring the regulators into it, bring them in in a way that empowers them, but also think of different business models and not simply a technical approach. And that that really is the key, I think. Well, I'm, I, I just can't wait to see what happens to this industry as you know, artificial intelligence and IoT and blockchain technologies and some of the new visualization technologies uh, and and the composability and modularity of of the Web three platform, you know, as they kind of impact the industry, it's just it's going to be just so interesting to watch how it evolves and changes. And I think there's there's so much need for change in that industry. So, I'm I'm very I'm delighted that um, Equidium and and yourself and uh, your uh, compatriots and uh, colleagues are are working on this problem and. Uh, there is a very vital and active uh, ecosystem of of innovators and startup companies that are are tackling this problem. Thank you, Sean, for sharing your thoughts with us today. And thank you all for joining us for this episode of W3B Talks. You can find research on this and other topics at blockchainresearchinstitute.org. I'm your host, Doug Heinzman. We hope you'll join us for the next episode of W3B Talks.